0: This is the last Sunday after Epiphany. The season of Sundays after Epiphany begins, of course, with the Epiphany, and it ends with an Epiphany in the story of both the ascent of Elijah in the first reading and in the story of the transfiguration in Mark's Gospel. So I thought what I'd do is to uh, preach about some of the themes that we have heard throughout the Sundays after Epiphany, this mini-green season, but it's a mini-green season tinctured with the whole question of the ways in which we understand the manifestation of the presence of Christ to the world. Christmas is the festival for Christians of the celebration of the presence of Christ to the Church and in the hearts of all faithful people. Epiphany is the celebration of the manifestation of Christ to the world and our belief as Christian people that the incarnation, the birth of the infant Jesus, has universal significance for humankind. And so between the Epiphany... And the last Sunday after Epiphany, in each cycle of reading, certain themes are highlighted. Some come up unique to that particular cycle, and others continuously through the three-year cycle of readings. The first theme which we always uh, read about and think about, because it will also play heavily during the season of Lent, is baptism. And so for Western Christians... Epiphany is the festival where we read the story of the visit to the infant Jesus by the three wise men. And the first Sunday after Epiphany is the reading about the baptism of Christ. Eastern Orthodox Christians on Epiphany read the story of the baptism. They begin with the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. But we wish to emphasize the universal significance of the birth of the Savior, and how individual Christian people through the ages have sought to make that manifest to the world. And then we reflect on our own vocation through our baptism as Christian people, understanding the Savior's baptism to constitute for us part of that template that I say that Jesus represents the pioneer and perfecter of our faith the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. So we think about baptism as the sacramental entry point to now living a life congruent with the purposes of God or at least seeking to do that and to discover through our lives what precisely that means and find the ways and the means to live a life where we become a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. To those closest to us, and to the world, both as a community and as individuals. So we talk about baptism and reflect about baptism uh, in the Sundays after Epiphany. We also say some things about how we understand what we believe as Episcopalians uh, is authoritative. If we say, where do we look uh, for authority in the Episcopal Church, what are the sources Of authority, we would say there are three. The Bible, the Tradition with a capital T, and our human reason. And our human reason, uh, the venerable Richard Hooker, would have described in the 16th century in such a way as that we would believe that it had to do with clear thinking about things, but also clear thinking about the things we're experiencing. So experience has something to do with this uh, understanding of the three-legged stools, scripture, tradition, and reason. I said this recently, but I'll repeat myself. It is important to realize that Christianity, as it began to develop and sort of solidify in the biblical period, uh, three things emerged. In this order, the episcopacy, bishops, the Apostles' Creed, or the baptismal creed, its precursors, and the Apostles' Creed, the way we understand incorporation, the bishops now are there to teach what has been taught, the transmitters of the tradition with a capital T. And we have now a creed that those being baptized repeat, prior to their baptism, which is their affirmation of faith. And the third was the canon of the Holy Scriptures, last in chronology. So the case could be made that the Holy Scriptures is integral to the tradition of the Church. And this has been where the big battles have been fought since the 16th century. Whether it is the umbrella under which everything else sits or whether it is part of this continuum of scripture, tradition, and reason. So that's the subject for another time. But in the readings on the second or third Sunday after Epiphany, there were things uh, in them about what was authoritative. How do we understand uh, the authority of Jesus Christ as it has been lived uh, by uh, Christian people over time. And then I decided to preach on Paul because uh, as one acolyte at the 8 o'clock liturgy said one week, well, there's another reading from Paul. And I said, well, it's not very long. He said, all readings from Paul are long. <laughs> And probably what he meant by that was that sometimes it sounds pretty convoluted, you know. Some of you who've read the lessons in church know that some of the Pauline readings, you'll read a reading and the whole paragraph is one sentence, right? Just remember when you read that, that uh, Paul dictated his letters to a secretary who was sitting here writing, listening, and so on. In some of the letters... He will say at the end, I'm adding this in my own hand. And so he writes at the bottom uh, himself in that particular case. But also, you need to know, too, this is wandering a little we possess no autograph copies of any biblical manuscript, no originals. We have some pretty early ones, but no originals. So we have copies of what Paul dictated or what the gospel writers wrote or what the other uh, epistle writers wrote in the New Testament. And the same is true for the Hebrew Bible. The great thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls was that in one swell foop, we went from the earliest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible dating from 900 A.D., To in 1947, manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible from 300 BCE. So you have now 1,200 years of manuscript tradition. And you can learn some things about what? The paleography of the Hebrew language, how it had been written over time. And the fidelity of the transmission of the text over 1,200 years. And as it turns out, it's pretty reliable. More reliable than some may have thought. You know, there's mistakes and play, things that got erased with, and then put in. And, but, but not too bad. So Paul is important because we receive from him some things about the practice of Christianity and understanding the saving work of Christ, which, is, which are very important. Since the 16th century, in all of the churches influenced by the Continental Reformation in Europe, uh, the centerpiece of Christian theology certainly was the belief of justification by grace through faith. That was the thing that Martin Luther, uh, the insight that he uh, advanced, uh, flowing out of his own internal emotional, spiritual, and mental states, which were in some degree of turmoil. So he came to the conclusion that it's by our faith that we're saved, through God's grace alone. Well, for the last 35 years, there's been something called the New Perspective on Paul. Also generated mainly by biblical scholars who come out of the Reformed tradition. And they would say, you know, equally important, if not uh, more central in some cases, is another term, not justification by faith through grace, but participation in Christ. Being in Christ through accepting Christ's saving work, that we participate in his saving work. So let me just speak about how this works briefly because it's very important. Paul went through a conversion experience. He believed he saw the risen Jesus and Jesus spoke to him and told him to stop persecuting his followers and to believe in him. And Paul did. Paul was a pious Jew. And in his letters he says, If God were to come tomorrow to judge, I would be blameless. I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. I have been a faithful Jew. I've been a keeper of the covenant, of the law. So I'm not worried. I'm not Martin Luther in ancient dress. I believe that I am righteous. But what about this? What about the Gentiles who believe in Christ and believe that they are in Christ? What do they need to do? And some of the Christians in Galatia and other parts of the churches that Paul founded said, well, here's what they need to do. They need to keep the Jewish law. Males must be circumcised. You have to keep the Sabbath. And you need to observe the dietary rules. That's the bit. You got to do those three things. And Paul came to believe that that was simply not necessary. Because being in Christ meant you were in So if you wanted to keep the Jewish law, keep the Jewish, there's no evidence that when it wasn't inconvenient for him, he did not keep the law throughout his life. But he believed that being in Christ, participation in Christ, is the first principle. So whenever you read the convoluted stuff from Paul or some of his things that say, I'm only getting about 10% of it, That's what's underneath all this. This is part of what's called the new perspective on Paul. And traditionalists in the Reformed tradition are very upset about this. And there's been a whole lot of books written about the fact that this participation in Christ business is just not true. So stay tuned. Last week I preached about Christian healing. And mentioned that we need to understand healing and the healing stories of Jesus always assist us in the process of understanding healing in a deeper and fuller way. Most of us believe that healing is being cured, going back to the status quo ante, right? And indeed, when we're suffering from some physical or emotional malady, we certainly want, as soon as possible, symptom relief. Right? So when we receive symptom relief, we're very gratified. But any of us who have been in the helping professions for any length of time also have observed that sometimes people are not cured, but they have received a species of healing. That somehow their emotional, spiritual, and mental states have gone through a change for the better. And a more mature spirit emerges. A greater willingness to assist others who are suffering. A way to share the practical wisdom that they have learned, understood in this case as the accumulated experience or the accumulated dealing with adversity. Practical wisdom. How have you coped with this in the past? And you can share that with others. So Jesus did not heal To show people that he was God, he healed people because he he felt compelled to do so by virtue of the fact that the healing work of God is present in the values of the kingdom of God. And the lesson that we learn from that is that you and I continue the healing ministry of the Savior, even today, in our community life and work, in our friendships in our sympathetic and compassionate treatment of others, particularly those on the margins. So healing is a very powerful concept in the life of the church. As we move now into the season of Lent, these themes will come up again in one form or another. Every Ash Wednesday... Sometime during the day I come into the church and open the prayer book and read to myself the baptismal covenant in our baptismal liturgy. And I ask myself, how have how I been doing for the past year? It becomes therefore an exam, an E-X-A-M-A-E-N, for the season of Lent. Will you seek and serve Christ in others loving your neighbor as yourself, for example? That's one of the questions. In the baptismal covenant that you that are affirmed by the person being baptized. So those things will now be part of our Lenten reflection and self-examination. Today we read Mark's version of the transfiguration. One of the best explanations, spiritual explanations of the uh, Transfiguration uh, is by Father Thomas Keating in his book, The Mystery of Christ, the Liturgy as Spiritual Experience. On the mountain Jesus was transfigured, that is to say, the divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. The transfiguration manifests the kind of consciousness that Jesus enjoyed which was not bound by the three-dimensional world. The spacious world of unity with the ultimate reality enabled him to be in direct contact with all creation, past, present, and future. What he's saying there, he says this elsewhere in his book, is that the transfiguration for the apostles was a prefigurement in a sense of Christ's ascension, where he now becomes present in all space and time. And so the disciples, the apostles, get sort of a preview of this before the events that are to occur in Jerusalem. Some biblical scholars believe, at least I was taught by some, that uh, this is a, a resurrection appearance that has been placed at this location in the Gospels uh, for the purpose of easing people's minds about what is about to happen as Jesus goes to Jerusalem. So we have a, we're, the glory that is to come has now been shown to us in advance. I ha- take the more traditional view. I think it's the opportunity for those three apostles to see Jesus in depth how would you and I appropriate that in our own personal lives when I say something like that, what would it mean? It would mean that maybe you have had in your life some insight where all of the things that you have been through you now see in depth. You have a deeper and fuller clarity about the shape of your life and how it is now going to move. And so for those apostles, they saw now who Jesus was in depth. The divine source of his personality pouring out through every pore of his body. It's important to say something about mountaintop experiences, you know. We live in a culture who is trying to seek one continuous blinding insight after another. All of the writers on the spiritual life uh, in the Christian tradition have warned against continuously seeking these things. It is not a particularly good plan. One of the examples in early Christianity when we see the emergence of the monastic movement in Egypt, in the desert, a lot of people thought, well, if they flee from the world they will be able to more easily encounter God. And some of them ran into the desert and ran into some things that you would never wish to be confronted with ever. There's a positive side to this, however, in terms of making sense of your spiritual pilgrimage and those insights or conversion experiences that you've had. In a wonderful book written about 35 years ago by an English priest named Kenneth Leach, he wrote a book called Soul Friend, which was about spiritual direction. And in the book, he has a paragraph where he describes uh, the biographer of St. Anthony of Egypt, one of the early founders of monasticism, who went into the desert and lived in a cave For 25 years. Now you and I are not called to that life. I don't expect most of us are. Right? But the interesting thing about this is. This is how. uh, What occurred. After 25 years. People would occasionally come to St. Anthony. For spiritual advice and things. He would be in the cave. And you know. Sell Exxon. You know that kind of thing. (laughs) But it came, uh, got around that St. Anthony was going to come out of the cave. He was going to emerge from his cave. So a group of people came out and stood in front of the cave, waiting for St. Anthony to come out. And St. Anthony came out. And here's how Athanasius describes what happened. He said, Anthony comes out of the cave. He didn't look any different than he did before he went in. He didn't look like uh, he had wasted himself with austerities or he had indulged himself with excess. He didn't look particularly happy to see us. He didn't look particularly sad that we were there or upset or angry. He was a man completely at home with himself. He was a man completely at home with himself. That wouldn't be a bad goal for the Christian life, would it? to have that kind of balance. And maybe you don't have to go to a cave to do it. So the process of making sense out of the mountaintop experiences that you've had is an important thing to do. This is now nearly 40 years ago, but when I was in seminary, there was a study, a sociological study that we had to read by two sociologists named Glaucon and Stark. And subsequent to that, there's been a gazillion of them. And it was called American Piety. And in this study, they discovered that 85% of the people in this study said that at least once in their life... They had had a concrete, real experience of the presence of God. This had no denominational flavor to it. It could have been for a nanosecond. But they believed that they had had a palpable experience of the presence of God. So this must not be an exotic thing. The question is, when you have them, what do you do with them? Peter said, it's a good thing we're here. We'll build three booths, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. We'll freeze the experience forever. Not a good plan, because these experiences point you in a direction that is godly. So this week, uh, think about your mountaintop experiences. See if they may be of any use to you over time in commending to others the practical wisdom that you have learned from them. Uh, If you do that, you'll be in a good position to move into Lent. Amen.